2: Welcome to Lies Agreed Upon. I'm Leah Parody. And I'm Brian Krim.
1: And it is so great to finally be back for season three. I mean, it seems like it's been a while, but we've been very gratified to hear from listeners that have missed us. And we couldn't be happier to be partnered with the New Books Network. Leah is a host. We've both been interviewed by other hosts on New Books Network. It's a great kind of umbrella organization with all kinds of great content, and we're now part of it. So we hope that this platform will introduce our conversations about history and film to a whole new bunch of listeners.
2: Yeah, it is great to be back, Brian. It has been a while, and I'm really looking forward to what we have planned. This season, we're going to turn our established format on its head. Instead of looking at how Hollywood uses history to talk about today, as our listeners have heard us say at the beginning of every episode so far, we're going to start instead with a historical era as our organizing principle, specifically the Cold War, and look at how the anxieties, preoccupations, prejudices, hopes, of people on both sides of the Iron Curtain were represented in films over those 40 plus years. We're gonna be talking about films that are not about a historical event. Instead, they take place within this historical event of the Cold War. So we're going to look at films that you'd expect us to include, like Dr. Strangelove, Red Dawn, And also ones that are a bit unexpected, like the first film we'll talk about today, which is Invasion of
1: the Body Snatchers. Yeah, you know, because we had been away for a while. We were actually thinking about doing a season on World War II, weren't we? And then, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine and and the tradition of everything that is old is new again. We suddenly had this Cold War atmosphere. I maybe not so suddenly, but it certainly felt that way. You know, I think everyone over the age of 50, like me uh, was immediately triggered when the invasion happened, and, uh, and it reminded both of us <laughs> of, gr- of growing up in a world where we we kind of assumed we we might not live to a ripe old age because of thermonuclear annihilation. You know, and as the West right now pours munitions into the Ukraine and we're fighting this proxy war, which for in the Cold War made the war hot for millions of people around the world. We, we get this feeling again. So we might not have a bipolar world order anymore, but Russia's actions in February of 2022 have definitely reminded us of an era where it seemed everyone had to take sides, whether they wanted to or not. Exactly.
2: And so why don't we get started with a reminder of just how paranoid we all were that there were commies everywhere and that Unlike the enemies in traditional wars, it wasn't always easy to know who they were. I mean, a paranoid America had indeed locked up the Japanese Americans during World War II, but in the Cold War, you couldn't just look around, spot the communists,
1: and lock them up. That's true, even though we certainly tried. We did our best. But no, in fact, people made their careers on the fact that the enemy could be anywhere uh, most notably of course is senator joseph mccarthy we're certainly going to talk about him you know more than once probably in this season but it's important to note that the red scare didn't just start with him and it just wasn't something pushed by the republicans democratic presidents were very much on board with treating average americans as traitors for doing things that were protected rights under the constitution so it's very it's a bipartisan idea to justify anything in the name of national security.
2: Yes. So today we're going to look at three different approaches to that shameful period in American history, the roughly 10 years after the end of World War II, when anti-communist hysteria was at a fever pitch. So our first film is indeed Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which came out in 1956, the second film is The Manchurian Candidate, which came out in 1962. And the third is The Way We Were, which came out a decade later in 1973. So, Brian, what are the lies
1: agreed upon that we're going to be looking at? Well, the first we kind of already touched on, which is the lie that you know Senator McCarthy, in, that in the brief moment of his ascendancy, you know, when he kind of dominated the media landscape, Like, that was the full extent of the Red Scare. You know, after all, it's right there in the name. McCarthyism, one and done, right? Well, you know, it wasn't. And also, it's not a uniquely Republican sin. It's, in fact, bipartisan. And the general public, no matter who they supported politically, were geared up to be paranoid about enemies hiding in plain sight for decades.
2: Yes. And then the second lie is that Vietnam was the first time that the American military was Blamed for failing to achieve a total victory. As we'll discuss in the context of the Manchurian candidate, the fact that the Korean War ended without a clear victory brought accusations that GIs from that war were soft and unpatriotic, and maybe even in the service of the enemy.
1: Definitely. I mean, that's one of the reasons we call it the Forgotten War, is we tend to forget that part of it also. Um, and finally, the third lie, you know, doesn't have a lot to do with the Cold War. It has to do with our current circumstances. The lie that most historians contend with in classrooms every day or anywhere else they're in public is that progress is inevitable. You know, that we are always on a path toward improvement, advancement, and expansion of rights that once achieved don't go away or, you know, a greater equality among people, even. So recording this as our rights as Americans are stripped away, we can't help but be struck by how some of the female characters in these films seem to live in a more feminist world than we do. Yes.
2: Yeah. So to get started, let's listen to a short public service film from 1950 called He May Be a Communist.
3: In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist, we take his word for it. If a person consistently reads and advocates the views expressed in a communist publication, he may be a communist. If a person supports organizations which reflect communist teachings or organizations labeled communist by the Department of Justice, she may be a communist. If a person defends the activities of communist nations while consistently attacking the domestic and foreign policy of the United States, she may be a communist. If a person does all these things over a period of time, he must be a communist. But there are other communists who don't show their real faces, who work more silently.
1: It was so confusing. Just a few years earlier, the public was being warned about fascism, not communism. And don't be a sucker. It was the demagogue stoking fear and promising the world to gullible chumps that people were being warned about, not red baiting.
4: I wanna give you the truth, folks. The truth about America. I know you've got a lot of questions. You wanna know why you're not getting the breaks you deserve? Well, I'm not a politician. But I've made it my business to study these things, and I happen to know the facts. Now, friends, I'm just an average American. But I'm an American American, and some of the things I see in this country of ours make my blood boil. I see people with foreign accents making all the money. I see Negroes holding jobs that belong to me and you. Now, I ask you, if we allow this thing to go on, what's going to become of us real Americans? Americans.
5: I've heard this kind of talk before, but I never expected to hear it in America.
4: This fellow seems to know
5: what he's talking about.
4: Now, friends, these books are free. Paid for by real Americans who want others to know the truth.
5: Excuse me, young man, but are you actually going to read that stuff? Sure, why not? You heard what he said. Yes, I heard. Do you believe in that kind of talk? I don't know. Makes pretty good sense to me.
4: I'm speaking to you as an American-American. And I tell you, friends, we'll never be able to call this country our own until it's a country without. Without what? Yeah, without what? Without Negroes. Without alien foreigners. Without Catholics. Without Freemasons.
5: You know What's wrong with the Masons? I'm a Mason. Hey, that fellow's talking about me. And that makes a difference, doesn't it?
2: So we hear there that the PSA Don't Be a Sucker is worried still in 1947 about people being sucked into fascism, to the lies of demagogues. But Harry Truman signed an executive order in the same year that set up a program to check the loyalty of federal employees. And the House Un-American Activities Committee, what we what came to be known um, by its shortened form of HUAC, had already been looking for subversives for years since during Roosevelt's administration. When Truman stated that government workers should have, quote, complete and unswerving loyalty to the United States, or else they were, quote, a threat to our democratic processes, Tens of thousands of people became subject to invasive examinations of their authenticity as loyal Americans. Lists of totalitarian, fascist, communist, or subversive organizations were created. The FBI investigated, and people were summarily fired if there was even a question.
1: Yeah, it was even more dramatic expansion of that sort of state power than we saw in World War One, you know, kind of starts there. with, So Woodrow Wilson, another democratic president, went down that road and Truman certainly picked it up as well. Uh, you know, the idea was that, you know, communists weren't humans anymore, even though they were kind of all over the place in the 30s without any problem. Uh, they were aliens, aliens to American values and the messy emotional wants and needs of a free market democracy, all the things we supposedly love so much. Uh, and this brings us to our our first film, which is Surprisingly, for maybe a lot of people who think it's just a sci-fi kind of cult classic, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. In fact, there is an entire subgenre of sci-fi movies that can be read as commentaries on aspects of the Cold War. We'll go through this later in the season when we talk about the fear of nuclear war. There's a whole series of movies from Godzilla to The Amazing Colossal Man to even the Day the Earth Stood Still. You know, these films that that harness viewers' anxieties about the atomic bomb and then made that fear manageable by containing it into a two-hour movie about a giant lizard or giant ants or a giant man or a giant woman for that for that matter. Huh. Radiation
2: poisoning makes everything gigantic. All right, duly noted. But back to body snatchers. Originally a serialized story in Collier's Magazine by Jack Finney, it was published as a novel in 1954. The film, when it came out in 56, was criticized in reviews for being unoriginal, which might have been partly because a film with a similar premise was released a year earlier. It came from outer space, which for those Rocky Horror Picture fans out there, you and I, we make the same connection every time I hear the title of that movie. Anyway, It Came From Outer Space had a script by Ray Bradbury, and it told the story of aliens capable, similarly, of replicating human appearance but not their personalities.
1: Yeah, but in that film, the aliens came in peace and left as soon as they could. An in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the alien incursion is decidedly more sinister Seed Pods, Sent to Earth by Aliens, Intent on Domination. Uh, the movie was directed by Don Siegel, who went on to direct Clint Eastwood in five movies, including Dirty Harry. And he also directed some you know, big-name films, Escape from Alcatraz, and another great Cold War paranoia film we wanted to talk about, Telephone. But it's really hard to find. It's not really available. So the movie opens with
2: our hero, Dr. Miles Bunnell, played by Kevin McCarthy, acting like a crazy person in a hospital ER, telling doctors they've just got to believe him. The movie then flashbacks as Miles tells his story. Just a couple of days earlier, he had returned to Santa Mira, California from a trip. Right away, a number of his patients, including an old girlfriend, Betty Driscoll, come to him complaining that their family members aren't acting like themselves. He mentions this to his friend, a psychiatrist, who assures him it's simply a case of mass hysteria. And in fact, there's actually a name for this kind of psychosis in real life. It's called Capgrass Syndrome.
1: Oh, so that's what we're in the middle of. Okay, yeah. But yeah, back to the <laughs> film. But, but that evening, he and Becky are called over to another friend's house and shown a body with no facial features just you know sitting there in a basement very quickly it starts to take on the physical appearance of miles and becky's friend then another body is found in becky's home looking just like her but before they can show these replicas to anybody the bodies disappear
2: so by the next night joined by two other friends who are also freaking out they find replicant bodies again and they figure out that the replicas emerge when the original person is sleeping when miles having realized all this tries to get the operator to contact the authorities to alert them she refuses and at this point he realizes that most of the townsfolk have already been taken over yes and you know
1: after a sleepless night in hiding, he and Becky are confronted by the pod versions of their former friends, including the psychiatrist. You know, it's revealed that the seed pods have been brought to Earth by aliens, and the pods are designed to replicate any life form, but without any emotion or personality. Like For all intents and purposes, their their friends and family are, have disappeared. So let's listen to this explanation and the supposed benefits that the pod people extol to Miles and Becky in one of this, you know, come join us type of speeches.
5: Miles, you and I are scientific men. You can understand the wonder of what's happened. I just think, less than a month ago, Santa Mira was like any other town, people with nothing but problems. Then out of the sky came a solution. Seeds drifting through space for years took root in a farmer's field from the seeds came pods, which have the power to reproduce themselves in the exact likeness of any form of life. Your new bodies are growing in there. They're taking you over, cell for cell, atom for atom. There's no pain. Suddenly, while you're asleep, they'll absorb your minds, your memories, and you're reborn into an untroubled world. Where everyone's the same? Exactly. What a world. We're not the last humans left. They'll destroy you. Tomorrow, you won't want them to. Tomorrow, you'll be one of us. I love Becky. Tomorrow, will I feel the same? There's no need for love. No emotion. Then you have no feelings. Only the instinct to survive. You can't love or be loved, am I right? You say it as if it were terrible. Believe me, it isn't. You've been in love before. It didn't last. It never does. Love. Desire. Ambition. Faith. Without them, life's so simple. Believe me. I don't want any part of it. You're forgetting something, Miles. What's that? You have no choice.
2: Right. So... At this point, Miles and Becky um, realize that they have got to escape. And so they they try to escape by acting as emotionless and personalityless as they can going through the streets of the town. But Becky cries out when she sees a dog almost get hit by a car. And so in that moment, her humanity is exposed. I mean... We all know being a dog lover must be a clear sign of non-pod people behavior. And then the townsfolk come after them, forcing them to hide in an abandoned mine outside town. And from their vantage point, they see a giant greenhouse filled with pods being cared for by the pod people.
1: Yeah, so after the, you know, another... Bad night. The next morning, Miles discovers that despite her best efforts, Becky did fall asleep. It was really quick, too. So those things grow fast. Uh, And she's been replaced. She alerts the others, you know, and Miles runs away. On the side of a busy highway, a very famous scene, he sees trucks going by filled with pods. He tries to stop traffic, yelling, You're next. You're next. And then finally, we find ourselves back in the hospital where the
2: movie began, and the doctors are still not convinced by Miles's story. They're sure he's just psychotic. That is, until the victim of a truck crash is brought in, apparently found under a pile of giant, mysterious pods he's been transporting. Finally believing him, the doctors call the FBI, who block off the roads to Santa Mira, and that's where the movie ends.
1: But does it? Yes. Yeah. So you know what do we make exactly? Of? <laughs> what do we make of, of all of this? Well, in 1956, the Pod people could have been interpreted in two different ways. That's kind of what, part of the appeal of the film. Now, I think either as communists or as the conformist society of 1950s America. Now, is Miles warning us that containment, you know, the policy of limiting the expansion of communist-controlled nations, is insufficient? Uh, you know, to use their metaphor, the loads of seeds of seed pods have already managed to get out. The FBI were too late to stop all of them.
2: Yeah, that's a very strong, you know, common reading of the film, that there's this, in a sense, okay, the FBI go and they close off this town. But the, the commentary could be that it's futile, that they did it too late. All you need is one to get out. In other words, all you need is one bit of infiltration in the West and, you know, we're all sitting sitting ducks. And, and the thing is, is that China, of course, we have to put China into the mix. It had also become a communist nation in 1949. And then, of course, we had the Korean War. And, but it, it wasn't really until the end of the Korean War in 53 that the West fully grasped and accepted that now both the USSR and China were in control of huge portions of the globe and huge numbers of its people. Uh, Korea had ended in a stalemate. And at this point in the 50s and then into the 60s, anti-colonial movements in Africa and Asia were adopting socialist political platforms as they agitated for an end to the you know, European imperial exploitation that they had been living under for in some cases decades, in other cases, you know, hundreds of of years.
1: So is containment really possible? And I think probably a very conservative cowed Hollywood that is playing into this red scare, uh, mayve thought that's what Siegel's movie was about too. But it's also possible to see the pod people Uh, as the stifling conformity of mainstream white American society during the same period. Now, this was the era of the first suburban subdivisions, like Levittown, where famously the houses looked so similar that husbands were known to accidentally pull into the wrong driveway at the end of their day at work. And honestly, the town in the film kind of looks like that too. And with victory in World War II and the emergence of the U.S. as the other pole in the bipolar world order of the Cold War era, You know, American culture was fundamentally self-congratulatory in this period and also, you know, famously kind of dull. So is the film making fun of that?
2: Yeah. I mean, even Adelaide Stevenson, who was a critic of the extreme anti-communist tactics of the era, campaigned for president in 1952 with the slogan, you never had it so good. The U.S. had won and was powerful because they were right about demor- democracy and capitalism and consumerism and everything. And the proof that they were right about all of those things was that they had won and that they were powerful. So it was this, this syllogism that really left no room for dissension or divergence. American society had so obviously gotten it right this was the sort of zeitgeist of the moment, that if you weren't happy, well, then there had to be something wrong with you. And so we can kind of hear those undertones in the explanation of why you should want to become a pod person. It could be that you want to become a pod person because then everybody's the same. In other words, communism. Or you could want to become a pod person Because then there just aren't any extremes. Everything is just kind of vaguely pleasant, much like, you know, I mean, the movie Pleasantville, right? I mean, it's Mm -hmm. this everything's just kind of nice. And so you can kind of see that as well.
1: Yeah, maybe the whole thing was sort of a an advertisement for heroin or something cuz everyone's got this sort of yeah, you know, they're just like <laughs> calm so and you know it's, it's really, <laughs> yeah. but you know, and we don't want to overstate really, you know, this conformist society of, of in the 50s cuz obviously uh there there was a thriving counterculture. And there's always outsiders and outliers. Um and so in the folk scene of the late 1950s and 60s, for example, was you know, one of the places where dissatisfaction could still be heard. Melvina Reynolds wrote the full classic Little Boxes in 1962, You know, pushing against the kind of consumerism and conformity you might see all around you in the Hollywood film.
0: Little boxes on the hillside Little boxes made of ticky tacky Little boxes on the hillside Little boxes all the same There's a pink one and a green one and a blue one and a yellow one and they're all made out of ticky tacky and they all look just the same and the people in the houses all went to the university where they were put in boxes and they came out all the same and there's doctors and lawyers And business executives, and they're all made out of ticky-tacky, and they all look just the same. And they all play on the golf course, and drink their martini's dry, and they all have pretty children. And the children go to school, and the children go to summer camp. And then to the university where they are put in boxes And they come out all the same And the boys go into business And marry and raise a family in boxes Made of ticky-tacky and they all look just the same There's a pink one and a green one and a blue one And
2: they all look just the same i love that song and i always loved that it was the choices the choice as the theme song for weeds as well <laughs> true, it was yeah. like perfect uh, perfect for the the subdivision that uh, that that we open up with in 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 that show so so you know was body snatcher's asking the question if we've smoothed out all the rough edges and quash all the imagination and individualism in America, then wouldn't our safety also be our downfall?
1: The year Reynolds wrote Little Boxes is also the year our second film was released. It's only a little less far-fetched than Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Although, interestingly, the Manchurian candidate reflected a very real obsession that 1950s Americans had about brainwashing. Not metaphorically speaking, you know, in terms of propaganda or the pressures of a conformist society, but real brainwashing as a pseudoscience.
2: It's interesting to look back now at just how much this was a preoccupation uh, in that era. The Manchurian Candidate was based on a 1959 novel by Richard Condon, uh, but the film was indeed, as you were saying, released in 1962. And it was adapted for the screen by George Axelrod, who also wrote The Seven Year Itch and the screen adaptation of Capote's Breakfast at Tiffany. So, a really kind of odd assortment of subject matter. Uh, it is arguably the greatest of John Frankenheimer's directorial efforts, who also uh, directed such films as The Birdman of Alcatraz, not to be um, yeah. confused with. We have a the lot of Alcatraz, Alcatraz. here. Yeah. And uh 7 Days in May, which is actually another kind of Cold War paranoia thriller. Um and and both of these men uh
1: produced uh the film. In some ways the plot is simple, which is why I think a lot of, you know, TV shows and films borrow from it the Manchurian premise as it's called. But in other ways it's very convoluted. And critics at the time tended to agree with Both of those characterizations. Major Bennett Marco, who's really played brilliantly by Frank Sinatra, you know, he really can act, finds out that he and another soldier in the platoon he'd led in Korea have been having the same inexplicable nightmare. They are with their platoon members waiting out a storm at a women's gardening club meeting. I think it's in New Jersey. Uh, The audience of the meeting, elderly ladies in hats and gloves, keep switching into an audience of uniformed Chinese and Russian military officers. Another soldier, Sergeant Raymond Shaw, played by Lawrence Harvey, is told by one of the Garden Club ladies to kill members of the platoon, and he calmly does so in front of everyone.
2: When Marco and the other nightmare sufferer identify then the same Soviet and Chinese operatives from their dreams when they uh, alert the US military, uh, the military starts to investigate this situation. And what comes out through the course of the film is that Shaw, along with the rest of the platoon, were brainwashed after being captured while on maneuvers in Korea. But it was Shaw who was the real target. Because he was being brainwashed specifically into being a secret assassin Totally unaware of his programming and therefore without any fear or remorse. Shaw, now a war hero for supposedly saving his platoon on the very mission where they were captured, it is discovered eventually. He can be triggered by the suggestion that he pass the time by playing a game of solitaire and then by the visual cue of the Queen of Diamonds.
1: And why Shaw? because he's not really a likable person, but you know the reason seems to be that you no know, his stepfather is a conservative senator. And the master plan is for Senator Iceland to become the vice presidential candidate. Iceland is such an idiot that his only possible way of becoming, you know, anything is because of his conniving and brilliant wife, Shaw's mother, played gloriously by Angela Lansbury. Who, by the way, was only three years older than Harvey, you know, playing her son in the movie.
2: Yeah, and she is truly one of—I mean, it's—it's it's one of the great characters of of all time. Um, Marco comes to realize that Shaw is programmed to kill the presidential candidate at the party's convention so that Iceland can step into his shoes. And so here's where Joseph McCarthy and the Red Scare kind of come into the plot.
1: Yeah. So, you know, Iceland in The Manchurian Candidate is a McCarthy-esque character. I mean, just every possible indicator is there, you know, but he's played for last. He's a buffoon. You know, he's coached by his ambitious wife into being, you know, a pretty effective demagogue because she's writing the script. Um, But what makes him ridiculous in the eyes of a 1962 movie going audience is precisely what struck terror into the hearts of thousands of Americans when Joe McCarthy did it himself a decade earlier.
2: Yeah, so this is the this is the important thing about this sort of distance of of a decade is that where, you know, the potential communist aliens in Invasion of the Body Snatchers are, you know, this is supposed to be a horror movie about these aliens who are actually communists here we have in 1962 that level of paranoia being uh you know which is mccarthy's level of paranoia being um really made fun of i mean really like he is um he is as you said a a buffoon and and so here in this kind of this kind of key central scene, we have Senator Iselin speaking to reporters and then afterwards he speaks to his wife. And what our listeners need to know is that is that near the end of this scene uh, and this you'll understand once you yeah. <laughs> at the end uh, at the near the end of this scene, she spots a bottle of Heinz sauce.
4: Just one thing, babe. I'd be a lot happier if we could just settle on the number of communists I know there are in the Defense Department. I mean, the, the way you keep changing the figures on me all the time, it, it makes me look like like some kind of a nut, like like, like an idiot. You know, the boys were even starting to kid me about it. Well just yesterday in the cloakroom, they said, Hey, Johnny! What? Well,
0: you're going to look like an even bigger idiot if you don't get in there and do exactly what you're told. Babe. Who are they writing about all over this country and what are they saying? Are they saying, are there any communists in the defense department? Of course not. They're saying, how many communists are there in the defense department? Yeah. So just stop talking like an expert all of a sudden and get out there and say what you're supposed to say. Come on, babe. I... I'm
1: sorry, Han. Yeah, you know, with uh, with some of my students, I play that clip, and then I can find a, a real clip of McCarthy and also at a press conference, and it's really indistinguishable. It's, it's pretty remarkable. It's a great job by Frankenheimer and the crew there. By 1962, what was truly scary wasn't the hard-to-identify enemies within the state. It was that the Soviet Union and China were both communists, and allies, and that America seemed to have gotten soft and affluent and wasn't capable of defending itself. In fact, after the Korean War ended in a stalemate, there was substantial blowback, you know, which, which few people I think remember, against US veterans of that war. There was an obsession with the idea that POWs had been brainwashed and therefore you know, didn't really try to win, and now that they're home, aren't reliable.
2: Yeah, um Susan Susan Carruthers has written this great article about the, the the this sort of brainwashing fear and how we see that playing out in the Manchurian Candidates uh um you know plot. And and what she sort of talks about is how there were these kind of two kinds of brainwashing that people were afraid of at that time. That um it, you know, there was this fear of brainwashing by the media right? Now, television was in everybody's homes, right? And then this was joined by this apprehension that the communists had kind of decoded how the brain works and that this was going to be as dangerous as the figuring out how to split the atom and that reds were now capable of remodeling human beings at will. And so we want to sort of kind of point out that Frankenheimer, and of course it's from Conan's novel, yoking together these two kinds of anxiety, this sort of media um, brainwashing, you know, mass, mass culture, and then these stories that America's 3,000 or so POWs in Korea, who in fact had survived forced marches and terrible treatment, that they actually were being exposed to quote Oriental techniques that um, you know, as was pointed out by um, JAC Brown, who wrote this this study of propaganda, exaggerated the latent feeling in the common man. Right, and so that's what we've got, sort of what we're we're seeing here in uh, in
1: Manchurian Candidate. Yeah, it really is remarkable to think that the government and the population at large a- actively distrusted returning POWs who had been through so much and were essentially, as we know from the name, forgotten war, kind of forgotten. And so this uh, this film really is should also be seen as a. Not a corrective to that, but just an, a cultural artifact that gets to what were really palpable fears in the fifties, um, in the wake of of this incomplete Korean War without a victory, without a loss or a victory, just sort of misery. Um, but yeah, so in nineteen fifty six, you know, McCarthy had been removed from power and died of alcoholism soon after. But the mechanisms of the Red Scare were were still in place for a few more years. Uh, consequently, the critique of McCarthyism in 1956, the, the film we just did, Body of Body Snatchers, was veiled. The pod people forced conformity. Non-conformism meant the death of self. Or if you want to look, take the other interpretation, 50s conformist society itself was being critiqued.
2: But by 1962, the Manchurian candidate was ridiculing McCarthy-era paranoia. But it was putting another fear in its place. Russia and Russia and China were this this was the fear that Russia and China were in it for the long con, right? And that their moles within the US weren't the average people that McCarthy ended up being after, you know, who had simply taken out a daily worker subscription in 1932 and you know got caught up in the Red Scare. Now the fear was that they were skilled professionals, these moles who were backed by cutting edge science and highly trained military operatives.
1: Yeah, we can kind of dismiss the you know the, the working class threat as so, what so many uh, Americans of the time did, but what about these yeah, elites, so-called elites? We're always afraid of them. Now, the real threat was the manipulation of of people's minds. You know, the the plot of Condit's novel was a surprisingly accurate representation of what American intelligence believed was going on. You know, and if the West was defined as valuing self-determination in contrast to the totalitarian Soviet Union and China, then what if Westerners could be robbed of that agency through brainwashing? Now, of course, in true Cold War logic, the US government decided it needed to figure out how to brainwash people too.
2: Of course. And these experimental methods actually were tried out on American and Canadian subjects through a secret program called MKUltra. And so here's a clip from a 1984 episode of a Canadian investigative show called The Fifth Estate, which is really basically like the Canadian equivalent of 60 Minutes, detailing revelations about the secret CIA program carried out not only in the U.S., but also in a medical facility attached to McGill University in Montreal. The MKUltra brainwashing
4: project got its start in the early days of the Cold War when some Canadian and American soldiers returning from the conflict in Korea expressed sympathy for their communist enemies at a time of paranoia about the so-called Red Menace. The Americans believed the Soviets and Chinese might well have devised an effective brainwashing method, and the CIA was determined to crack it, as ex-CIA officer John Gittinger told the Fifth Estate in 1980. So we were
5: charged with rather uh, an elaborate attempt to try to find out chemical, psychological any kind of means that people could use to influence the behavior of other people.
1: But the CIA knew it could be politically difficult to fund brainwashing directly. So it set up a front company to do
4: it, euphemistically called the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology.
1: Well, I did not even know that we did that to the poor Canadians. So um, my students are always impressed by the uh, reality of MKUltra because it's so often depicted in you know, in culture. uh, But the truth is scary enough. Now, so those reviewers who complained at the time that the Manchurian Candidate's premise was simply too convoluted and unrealistic to be the foundation of a classic thriller were, in hindsight, pretty naive, I guess.
2: Yeah. and, And by the way, we've given a fairly skimpy plot summary for the Manchurian Candidate, focusing only on what was needed for our discussion. And for those of you who've seen the movie, you understand why. First of all, it's a very convoluted film that is hard to capture in a brief synopsis, so why try? But also, the various twists and turns are so much fun to unravel that we really don't want to spoil that experience for anyone who inexplicably is going to be coming to uh, this film for the, the first time. And so now we'll turn to our last movie the way we were for many listeners, particularly those who grew up in the pre streaming era. This is a movie that it was hard to avoid. It was constantly on rotation as the late night or matinee flick on local TV stations. It's usually treated as a classic love story. It stars a gorgeous Robert Redford from the Butch and Sundance era and Barbara Streisand at the height of her box office power. But if you look again, it's actually a very strange film. Even reviewers at the time commented on how class, ethnic identity, and politics were the unusual plot components really seriously underpinning the doomed love affair plot of our main characters.
1: Yeah, and I think part of that you can really as- ascribe to the director, Sidney Pollack, who's another, you know, we'll actually talk about him in some upcoming episodes. Uh, but, you know, he's one of the great 1970s directors. And the writing credit, however, goes to Arthur Lorenz, who, among other things, wrote the book for West Side Story. But there's a huge list of, of uncredited writers, including Francis Ford Coppola. And ironically, given that part of the plot centers on the Hollywood blacklist, Dalton Trumbo. Now, I have to say I was shocked when I saw the long list of writers because the movie has always felt very coherent to me, which is a tall order, given that it spans multiple decades and locations.
2: Yeah, I agree. It I, I was really surprised when I saw how many uh, script doctors I guess they brought in for it. In addition to Redford playing the waspy and entitled Hubble Gardener, and Streisand playing the working class Jewish Katie Morosky, we also get another sort of 70s uh, regular Bradford Dillman as Hubble's best friend, J.J., and Lois Childs as J.J.'s love interest. The cast also includes a very young James Woods, uh, Viveka Linfors, who I always liked, Patrick O'Neill, playing a kind of slimy character, as he often did, (laughs) the great character actor Herb Edelman, and many other familiar faces of that era.
1: Yeah, and I think everyone should go on Twitter and tell James Woods that he plays a very believable communist, uh, and and a Jewish communist at that. I'm sure he'll really appreciate it. Um, The story opens in the late 1930s on the campus of an elite liberal arts college, where scholarship student, Katie works multiple jobs, campaigns on behalf of socialist causes, including against Franco's regime in Spain, and dreams of being a writer. Hubble is your big man on campus, an athlete, you know, also annoyingly a gifted writer. The two characters connect, but are you know, they live in such different worlds that it amounts to nothing more than a brief but lively conversation about politics and a dance.
2: Years later, near the end of World War II, Katie and and Hubble cross paths again. By this time, Katie is working as a writer for a radio station in New York City, where she continues to push the envelope with the censors over political content, just like she had done back on her college campus. Dragged to a club one night by her boss, she encounters a very drunk Hubble. She takes him home. He then doesn't remember anything in the morning, but they soon start a relationship that continues after the war ends.
1: Yes. You know, two people from very different worlds. Uh, they move out to Hollywood where Hubble is hired as a screenwriter on the strength of his one uh, published but unsuccessful novel um, and they become embroiled in the Hollywood blacklist era.
2: Katie eventually finds common cause with others in Hollywood, who had fled the Nazis, fled fascism in Europe, and who now all go to Washington, D.C. to help defend the Hollywood Ten, accused of un-American activities. Returning to Los Angeles, Katie and the others are met at the train station by Hubble and other spouses, but also by reporters and an angry mob. In the ensuing melee, uh, Hubble ends up being punched and Hubble and Katie take refuge in a room off the main train hall where they have this argument.
6: I'm fine. It's always fun meeting trains, you no know? <coughs> I'm sorry,
4: Hubble. I really didn't expect this.
6: I didn't expect to come to Hollywood and get a chance to tell off the world either, did you? Is that what you think I'm doing? You bet I do. I'm not telling off the world, Hubble. I'm just standing up for something I believe in. Doesn't it make you angry listening to Bissinger ridicule those men? Calling them martyrs just because they have guts, which he doesn't? to fight for their principles, to fight for their Bill of Rights, his Bill of Rights and yours? Bill of Rights? What Bill of Rights? We don't have any Bill of Rights. We don't have free speech in this country. We never will have. We never will if people are willing to take a stand for what's right. We never will have because people are scared. This isn't college. This is grown-up politics, Katie. And it's stupid and dangerous. What are you telling me to do? Sit by and shut up just because it's dangerous? I'm telling you it's a waste. That's what I'm telling you. And that those men and their families are only going to get hurt. And that nothing is going to change. Nothing. And after jail, after five or six years of bad blood, when it's practical for some fascist producer to hire some communist writer to save his ass because his hit movie's in trouble, he'll do it. They'll both do it. They'll make movies, they'll have dinner, they'll play tennis, they'll make passes at each other's wives. Now what in the hell did anybody ever go to jail for? For what? A political spat? Hubble, you are telling me to close my eyes and to watch people being destroyed so that you can go on working. Working in a town that doesn't have spine enough to stand up for anything but making a blessed buck. I'm telling you that people, people are more important than any goddamn witch hunt. You and me. Not causes, not principles.
0: Hubble, people are their principles.
4: Oh, God.
2: Trying to rescue their marriage, uh, Hubble and Katie have uh, a baby, but Hubble has been unfaithful. During this period, and Katie has alienated all the producers who could have hired her as a writer. So the marriage ends with Katie returning to New York and Hubble staying in Hollywood.
1: And the final scene, you know, once again, the movie jumps forward another few years, and you have Katie uh, back in New York is handing out Ban the Bomb leaflets outside the Plaza Hotel. When Hubble gets out of a cab with you know a, a very another waspy looking partner, um, and they have a tender reunion where we find out that Katie has remarried, her psychiatrist husband who is also Jewish is raising Hubble's daughter. Hubble has continued in Hollywood and stuck with women who weren't his equal and who didn't challenge him to be anything more than something that was comfortable. As viewers were left with the message that it couldn't have turned out any other way.
2: Yeah. Ah, the way we were. But if we step back, as a reviewer for The Hollywood Reporter did way back in 1973, as I said before, the movie is actually quite subversive. Because at the end of it all, Hubble is not an admirable character. And Katie is given far more screen time to articulate the importance of politics and morals and the need to take a principled stand, uh, far more screen time and far more of the audience's sympathy than Hubble's screenwriting career is given, or that any of Hubble's, you know, waspy uh, entitled friends are, are given.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting to see uh, Rob Redford play the most. Entitled white male you could ever find, and do so in a way that that obviously is uh, makes him look very bad, and and that's at you know the height of his his powers you could say as an actor. So I think it's really great how he can play sort of a, a unlikable person yet still be you know as we as we mentioned this the the box office appeal we everyone loves so much. Uh, you know the politics are explicit in, in this film, and every one of Katie's critiques of her country from the refusal to get involved in Spain, you know, to the limitations of Roosevelt's social policies to obviously the Hollywood blacklist era um, and the military industrial complex driving the nuclear arms race. All of these things are portrayed as the correct position and that to have had that much passion to be that much of a nonconformist has provided Katie with a much richer version of an American life than the conformist wasp crowd that, you know, are in in, in run, running things in the country. Now, all of Hubble's people, like JJ, are wistful, regretful, and kind of ultimately painfully mediocre.
2: Yeah, and and you know, with the hindsight that is possible in 1973, the Cold War is seen by that point as a long haul, a struggle that has resulted in both domestic and foreign casualties. Katie's passion can't help but bring to mind the anti-Vietnam War demonstrators and second wave feminism. The Hollywood 10 plot line can't help but be a contemporary critique of the overreach of Hoover's FBI. He just died the year, that, um, the year before the movie comes out. And, of course, Nixon's paranoia as
1: well. So let's revisit our lies for the episode. The first and the second are tied together, in the focus on McCarthy as the nexus of the Red Scare, which really lets a lot of other people off the hook, you know, from craven Hollywood executives to Roosevelt, Truman and many Democratic enablers, and, of course, average Americans who just don't think it matters much because it's not going to affect them. I think our, our friend Hubble was a good example of that. Exactly.
2: And if we track the attitude towards the worst excesses of the early Cold War, then we can see that the monster communists, undetectable and without regard for human emotions, a la body snatchers, were replaced a decade later with the nightmare of American weak willed decadence being manipulated by wily and scientifically advanced Chinese and Soviet cooperation in the Manchurian candidate. And so, it doesn't really end with McCarthy's downfall. Even that's kind of the point. It limps along for the rest of the decade, and then finds a resurgence in a way in Nixon's paranoia-fueled enemies list.
1: And you know exactly, and that's the America that watched the way we were. You know, nineteen seventy-three. It was released just after it was announced that a peace agreement had finally been agreed to in Vietnam. Now this is. Two years after the publication of the Pentagon Papers, which exposed just how long the U.S. had pursued a losing strategy in a lost war, and a film in which the complacent Hubble just shrugs at Katie's insistence that people are their principles, was released four days before the Saturday Night Massacre, when Nixon's attorney general and assistant AG re- resigned rather than follow Nixon's order to fire the prosecutor leading the investigation into Watergate.
2: So for the movie-going audience, the sense of regret that permeates the film was really apt for the zeitgeist, as was Katie's passion. And this brings us to lie number three, that the story of history is always the story of progress, an inevitable march towards greater rights, greater justice, and greater freedom for everyone. It is particularly painful to point out that the strong-willed, uncompromising Katie Morosky hit the screens just months after Roe v. Wade became the law of the land. So we can imagine many young women watching the film with a sense of optimism that they could be a Katie without compromise, no longer needing to play second fiddle in a country or to a man for whom things always came too easily.
1: Lies agreed upon is written and produced by brian krim and leah parody our theme was written by simon parody we are a proud partner of the new books network and can be found wherever you find your favorite podcasts for transcripts and links to what you hear in each episode as well as bonus content visit our companion website liesagreedupon.com you can also find us on facebook and on twitter at lies underscore upon